At 26, Theodore Roosevelt's life was an embarrassment of riches. He had survived a sickly youth by spending time outdoors, picking up the skills of the taxidermist and natural scientist. He also became physically fit, taking up boxing and other strenuous activities like wilderness hunting. While he suffered the death of his father early in his Harvard days, he used that loss as motivation, devouring coursework of all kinds, becoming well-read and well-respected. He graduated Harvard near the top of his class and was engaged to Alice Hathaway Lee, generally regarded as quite the catch, especially for a guy who wore thick mutton chops well past their time in vogue. By 1882, he published the Naval War of 1812, which served as the principal text on that area of naval history for over a century. He was elected to the New York State Assembly at 24 and rose through the ranks quickly by virtue of his reputation as an honorable reformer of corruption. By 26, he had a baby on the way with his wife of three years and had recently returned from a hunting trip to Dakota Territory, where he brought home trophies to decorate his house and impress his wife. He also brought home a new income plan. He would own a ranch and thousands of cattle in the Dakotas to provide for his brightening future. Roosevelt spent the early winter of 1884 planning his ranching operation, planning construction on a new bayside home for his growing family, and planning his new political strategies to fight corruption. On February 9th and 10th, Roosevelt returned to New York to visit his mother and wife, both staying at the same place as the baby was about to arrive. His mother wished him well on his trip back to Albany and retired early on the 10th. His wife wished he could stay as he left for a train back to Albany on the 11th. You'll have a baby to keep you company soon enough, he reminded his darling little sunshine. Sure enough, on the morning of February 12th, Roosevelt received a telegram in assembly. He had a daughter born on Lincoln's birthday. Such a sign. A baby girl doing very well, the mother doing fair. Roosevelt kept himself busy and upbeat, enjoying congratulations from friends and rivals in Albany. Then a second telegram came. Come home. Roosevelt's train was delayed by dense fog. The New York Times called it suicidal weather. He did not arrive back in New York until around midnight. He paid a man to drive him to his house where he could see windows lit up in every level of the home at so late an hour. His brother greeted him at the door. There is a curse here. Is it mother? Is it Alice? Roosevelt asked. It was both. Roosevelt went to his wife. The back aches and abdominal pains so typical of labor were actually symptoms of gradual kidney failure. The shock of delivering a child sped up this process. He held her, spoke sweet nothings, and though not likely given his character, he might have even sworn oath. Elliot Roosevelt came to Alice's bedside. It was time for Theodore to say goodbye to his mother. At three in the morning, the Roosevelt children gathered around their matriarch and watched her die at the age of 48. No time for mourning. Roosevelt went back to Alice's room. There he held her as day broke, as the sun rode high at noon, but he would have to let her go before the sun set on February the 14th. Valentine's Day, four years to the day that Alice and Teddy had announced their engagement. Alice Hathaway Lee Roosevelt was dead at 22. Roosevelt documented this gauntlet of suffering tersely and tellingly. In his journal for February 14, 1884, his entry consists of one large black X, captioned with his declaration. The light has gone out of my life. We won't be the first people to talk about it. And we won't be the last. But while we're in the middle of it, we'll do our best to clarify the details inside our sources. This is Professor Footnote. An annotated conversation between Professor Joel and Professor Brett on a marginally interesting topic. So, Brett, today we're talking on the show about uh, Teddy Roosevelt and specifically his time in North Dakota. And uh, you and I share something with the great man in that we are both not necessarily from this place. I am from the great Pacific Northwest, and you are from? Illinois. Illinois. And what brought us out here was the fact that we are academically tied to this institution and we live here. But, but what, what do you think originally attracted Roosevelt to North Dakota and specifically the Badlands? Well, he comes out originally uh, on, a, on a hunting expedition. Uh, his family was big into uh, hunting. His brother, Elliot, had just returned um, in 1883 from India and had a bunch of trophies 
And Roosevelt, uh, I think, was clearly envious. He and his brother were always uh, um, hunting and had an interest in, in natural science. Uh, Roosevelt had his own taxidermy kit as a kid, right? So they were really into sort of being out in the wilderness. Um, and he had just recently met somebody who said he was starting a hunting expedition uh, in North Dakota, a hunting lodge. Mm-hmm. And so his brother comes back. And he gets this information, and he decides it's time for him to go kill something because he hasn't done it in a while. Uh, and he, he hops on a train, and he goes out to uh, Little Missouri uh, on the Little Missouri River in western Dakota Territory at that time. Um, so he's initially drawn to, to kill things. Right? Yeah. And at this point, I mean, it's important to note that killing things was a hobby for the money class most Mostly, I mean, there were fox hunts that went on and, and hunting trips. And, you know, in, in the late 19th century, it's not uncommon for, for young men of Roosevelt's age, age to be into this. Yeah. He was a little bit more into it than most. Well, and that's, you know, he was, he says over and over again in various writings that the true measure of a man is his ability to, uh, to go out alone with rifle and, and kill other beasts. Yeah. Um, and, and like a lot of things, Roosevelt there's a sort of weird there's a weird tension between his motivations to do it one is if you kill the buffalo then you can stuff the buffalo and then sort of preserve it and categorize it and do this sort of you know uh, late 1800s science yeah. right like to to understand the beast you kind of had to kill it yeah to um, open it up and look what was inside and see what was going on yeah uh, and so you know he he was into killing it for that reason but he was also into killing it for this reason of of personal development, right? He honestly believed uh, that until he had killed every large beast of North America, he wasn't quite uh, an, an American man. Yeah, and it's important to note that he he talks over and over again in his own writings and in the biographies on him about the strenuous life. He had been a very sickly child, um, filled with a consumption, I suppose you would say. Well, no, because that's tuberculosis. <laughs> he uh, he had asthma, asthma, and he had uh, what what they called uh, cholera morbus, which I think is uh, just some kind of like gastrointestinal uh, disease. Yeah. Um, and you know, living on the East Coast didn't make it any better because uh, they were using soft coal at the time, so it was just all sooty and the yeah. air was bad. And every time he got nervous. He'd have a cholera morbus attack, and so he couldn't breathe. And, yeah. uh, so he was also constantly sent out to the wilderness to get better as a child, to Maine, to Vermont, to New Hampshire, the, the wooded areas there to get better. And what he did while he was there uh, was uh, hunt or, or explore. Or hike. And, and the myth of him begins to build at this time. He famously talks about the fact that his father sat him down and said, well— you're either going to be this person sitting in a bed or you can go out and develop your body and become a man. And he took that as a sort of call to arms that he never let up for his entire life. Yeah, that's true. He, uh, he you know, I mean, he did boxing in uh, in college, yeah. uh, but, but most of the time he wanted to be out, right? He wanted to be challenged by the terrain, by the other beasts. Um, he was just, and he, he, he was also reading books for children at that time that sort of romanticized the frontier explorer. Uh, and so, yeah, all of this starts coming together for him at a very young age. Um, and so in the, in the fall of 1883, he hops on a train and goes out there. Footnote one. For an account of how youth literature shaped the Victorian notion of hunting, as a way to shape elite masculinity, read John M. McKenzie's Hunting and the Natural World in Juvenile Literature in Imperialism and Juvenile Literature, 1989. While he's out there, he discovers another thing that, uh, that Eastern wealthy people like to do, uh, which was speculate on various forms of industry, in this case, uh, open-range uh, uh, cattle. Yeah, uh, and so he, he while he's hunting, he asks his uh, hunting guides if uh, they want to go into business with him. Yeah, and and it seems like he makes the decision almost on a dime. You know, he turns he turns his whole life in terms of the, spending the money, and this is this is also not uncommon. I mean, people with money 
the moneyed class who had been brought up and who hadn't actually earned it, they spent it, you know, any any which way they want. And so he saw a business opportunity having almost never pursued any business opportunity before in his life. I mean, he'd gone to Harvard. He'd gone to law school for a year. He'd gone to, to the state assembly. He wanted to join the ruling class. But I don't think he understood what it, what it meant to be a businessman. And this is really his first venture into it. Yeah, he, uh, he comes from uh, the the Knickerbocker class, uh, which we've talked about on this show before, um, the wealthy uh, Dutch immigrants of New York. Uh, and so, you know, his uncle is a, a powerful banker. Uh, the family is deep in philanthropy in New York. And when he's thinking after, after graduating what he's going to go into or while he's in college because he talks to his dad, um, you know, he wants to go into the natural sciences. And his dad says, well, if you want to do that, it's going to be a rough life because there's no money in that. Yeah. And so he says, well, then I'm, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Um, and he tries law. He doesn't like it. He goes into politics at a very young age. He's in the New York Assembly at the age of, what would he be, 25? Yeah, he's 25. And at that point, he'd already written a, a well-reviewed and still cited history of the Naval War of 1812. So he was a public historian. Yeah, which was taught like as the canonical text of naval history of that period um, well into the, the 1900s. Yeah. Um, and so he had a bit of a literary career, um, but he also had a family um, and uh, uh, it was growing, right? His wife was pregnant in 1883. Uh, and so he decides ranching is the way he's gonna go. And and as an indication of how naive he was, uh, he asked these two guys if they'll, um, he asks uh, Ferris and, and Merrifield, uh, who are his guides, if they'll go into business. And they say they're under contract with this other folks. And he goes, well, I'll just buy the cattle you're covering under that contract. Um, how much do you need? And they say, uh, to do it right, I think the, the old-timey phrasing uh, Ferris says is it, it would make the better side of $40,000 blush. Yeah. Um, and, and they say, but to get started, about a third of that. So he cuts them a check for $14,000 yeah. and it, hands it to them. And they're it, like, what do we do with this? Where do we cash this? <laughs> there's no bank in Little Missouri, which eventually becomes the town of Medora. There's, there's nothing there. There's a, a train stop and a few shacks and... You know, it's really fairly spread out throughout the badlands in that area. So he gets back on a train. He cuts in the check, gets back on the train, and almost doesn't think twice about it in the time he goes back to New York. Yeah, I mean, he had gotten a bit of assurance because they had to go get out of their contract. So he hung out in Medora waiting for a telegraph saying, we're good to go. And then as soon as he got it, gets on a train and he goes back to New York and trust these two guys to take that $14,000 and start a ranching operation. Which which he has no idea of how it should work. He's not back there ranching. He's on a hunting vacation. He has no idea about how the money will be made. He just knows that ranching is an investment to be made. He had actually asked his uncle uh, earlier uh, if ranching was a good investment. His uncle was like, no. Uh, because the folks who were investing at that time were uh, largely foreign investors, right? Um, English folks who had been, uh, who were too far down on the inheritance chain to make their own money. So they went out there um, to to either succeed or fail uh, and, and make a name for themselves. Uh, and one of the most famous European guys out there was uh, the, the Marquis de Marais, um, who was this weird eclectic guy who decided he was going to try to undercut the Chicago packing industry by packing beef in North Dakota and shipping it uh, straight to restaurants. Yeah. Uh, and so he names the town Medora after his wife, builds up a relatively elaborate infrastructure for Western North Dakota at the time, uh, and, and he and Roosevelt will eventually have uh, uh, many run-ins with each other that are, that are fairly interesting. And we'll talk about that a little bit, a little bit later. Footnote 2. Herbert O. Bayer explains the pivotal role of European, specifically British, investment in the development of open-range ranching in the American West in the Journal of Economic History, Volume 9, from 1949. Uh, so he goes out there, and, and 
he returns to North Dakota then for the second time after the death of his wife. Yeah. Um, he's got an excuse to go um, because he's got this ranching investment that he can chase. Uh, but he knows fairly quickly that he's going to spend a lot of time out there after the death of his wife. He, he returns to Albany and does his legislative work. But even three weeks after the death, he's emailed some friends in Maine. <laughs> well, he hasn't emailed them. Oh. <laughs> he sent them a letter. All right. Well, we're going to strike that. <laughs> but he, mails. One. he mails a letter. <laughs> he mails a letter um, uh, to his friends in Maine, friends that he had spent time with when he was on one of his getting well excursions, yeah. uh, and says – I'm moving to the Dakota Territory to be a rancher, and you guys should come. Yeah. Um, and it's an indication of his weird, his weird elitist relationship to other people, right? These were folks, um, I call them friends, but I'm not sure that's an appropriate representation of their relationship. These were the people who worked the lodge he stayed at when he was getting well. They were safari guides. Right. I mean, that's what they were for him. They were people who he felt he could trust in the woods, who would hold up their end. And he's not just asking them to come out and hang out with them. He's saying, come partner with me. And by partner, I mean, you do the most of the work and I pay for everything. Yeah. And and, you know, Sewell, one of the guys that that goes out there, writes back to his brother and says, you know, you should come out. Um, If I had the money, I'd bring you out. But if I had the money, I wouldn't be working. out here. Uh, And so it is a weird, there is a weird class imbalance in that relationship. But Roosevelt does refer to them as as friends, as colleagues, as partners. Um, But he knows right away that he's going to go out there. The one thing he's got to do before he can leave is manage the uh, Republican nomination of the 1884 election. He gets elected uh, at the age of 25 or 26 to be the head of the New York delegation for the Republican National Convention. And he gets elected as a kind of reform-minded politician. And at the convention of Chicago, uh, which is his last stop, his last bit of business, he he leaves from the convention to North Dakota. Uh, His hope is to elect a reform candidate at the convention, and that fails in pretty spectacular fashion. Uh, And so not only is his personal life a shambles, his political life is an absolute His his career is a shambles. I mean, everything about his life that he thought was going to happen, everything that he'd planned so carefully, he married the prettiest girl, the most sought-after girl that all the guys in Harvard were after. He'd gone to law school, found that didn't work out. He'd gotten to the state assembly and made a splash with his personality, and everything falls apart on the death of his wife and his mother. And so he sells everything, and he yeah. plans to go forth to North Dakota, in his mind, maybe forever. Yeah, he puts his 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 whole life in receivership to his older sister, yeah. who uh, is in charge of selling the family home where his wife and mother died, the home in New York where he was going to live with his wife and his new child, and he asks his sister to raise uh, his daughter. Um, and that's that. Then he's on a train. He does his work. He loses at the convention, uh, and on his way out, he gives an interview. Um, uh, he gives an interview in Chicago, and he gives another interview in St. Paul uh, on the train ride out to North Dakota. And the interviews rep- indicate exactly how screwed he was politically, um, because if he if he backed the Republican candidate uh, Blaine, then he would be going against his reputation as a serious reformer. But his only other option was to bolt the party, and that was viewed as even less uh, uh, palatable for his career. And so he was in a, a no win scenario. It was the Kobayashi Maru of New York <laughs> politics at the time. Footnote three Edmund Morris provides a very detailed description of the 1884 Republican Convention and Roosevelt's actions during and after in The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt, reprinted in 2010. And so in a lot of ways, going off the grid was his only option, which is kind of how he felt about his personal life, too. Uh, There's no, there was, in his Victorian romantic sensibility, no point uh, in ever loving or trying to love again. Um, his, His baby daughter 
uh, even at a very young age, bore a striking resemblance to his wife. He, he just wanted to essentially leave that part of his life behind. Um, and, you know, uh, his friends were worried about him. They were yeah. concerned that he was going to lose it. He had an almost psychotic ability to compartmentalize his life. And it shows for the first time in these episodes and the fact that he buries his wife and his mother. He leaves these instructions with his sister and his daughter, goes back to Albany and takes care of his business. And everybody in Albany says, dude, you should you should take more time. Right. And he goes about it like it's nothing's happened. Like in this one little very formative period where they claim he's walking around trying to figure out what to do. He's decided I'm going to go to the Dakotas. I'm going to take care of my business and I'm going to walk away from this whole life. And in, in, in some ways you can see that's a pretty rational decision. Right. I'm going to hit the reboot button, but to not really think about them. <laughs> and he clearly doesn't from from week two in the Dakotas when he comes back after, after the death of his wife and his mother. They talk about him laughing. They t- you know, he's having a grand time. Yeah. I mean, there were there were rumors around Medora that he was out there because his life fell apart. Um, but there were only rumors. Yeah, uh, there wasn't. He didn't converse much about it at all, no. even to people who knew him well, like Sewell and Dow. Um, so, you know, he, uh, uh, yeah, he, he, he went out there to, I mean, I don't know if reboot is right, um, but to divorce himself wholly from whatever was back in the East Coast. At least that's how he talked about it when he first gets out there. Um, and, you know, it makes a certain amount of sense that he can do that because, again, given his, his notions that masculinity and identity are all crafted, right, or, or forged in the crucible of hunting in the wilderness, all he's got to do is hunt his way to a better personality or a, a better uh, sense of self. Uh, and so, you know, he gets out there and he says it's about ranching, but the first thing he does is he, he gets a horse and a buckboard and he loads it up and he starts shooting stuff. I was very proud over my first bear, but Merrifield's chief feeling seemed to be disappointment that the animal had not had the time to show fight. He was rather a reckless fellow, and very confident in his own skill with the rifle, and he really did not seem to have any more fear of the grizzlies than if they had been so many jackrabbits. I did not at all share his feelings, having a hearty respect for my foe's prowess, and in following and attacking them always took all possible care to get the chances on my side. Merrifield was sincerely sorry that we never had to stand a regular charge, while on this trip we killed five grizzlies with seven bullets, and except in the case of the she and cub spoken of further on, each was shot about as quickly as it got sight of us. The last one we got was an old male, which was feeding on an elk carcass. We crept up to within about 60 feet, and as Merrifield had not yet killed a grizzly purely to his own gun, and I had killed three, I told him to take the shot. At once he whispered gleefully, I'll break his leg, and we'll see what he'll do. Having no ambition to be a participator in the antics of a three-legged bear, I hastily interposed a most emphatic veto, and with a rather injured air he fired, the bullet going through the neck just back of the head. The bear fell to the shot and could not get up from the ground, dying in a few minutes. But first he seized his left wrist and his teeth and bit clean through it, completely separating the bones of the paw and the arm. Although a smaller bear than the big one I first shot, he would probably have proved a much more ugly foe, for he was less unwieldy and had much longer and sharper teeth and claws. I think that if my companion had merely broken the beast's leg, he would have had his curiosity as to its probable conduct more than gratified. Theodore Roosevelt, Hunting Trips of a Ranchman, 1885. So Theodore Roosevelt originally goes to North Dakota because he wants to shoot buffalo before they're all gone. Um, And then he realizes there's a bunch of other stuff he wants to shoot, including uh, elkhorn, blacktail deer, um, not elkhorn, elk, blacktail deer, and... uh, Mountain goats. Mountain goats. um, 
and and uh, he he spends most of his time as a rancher taking his two ranch foremen with him to go shoot things uh, because that's how he wants to spend his time. Uh, he gets involved in writing a book about uh, his hunting travails to, to go back to the East Coast and sort of explain what hunting on the frontier is like. Uh, and by virtue of hunting, he seems to be crafting a character, and you can get a sense of it by thinking about the stories he tells as he's hunting. Um, do you have any favorite stories of Roosevelt while he's hunting? This is a softball you're throwing me. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are so many, right? I mean, there's – there. Uh, one of the, the interesting things is sort of he has a romantic notion about how he's supposed to hunt. And so in his first excursion uh, to North Dakota, he insists upon riding a horse to hunt because he thinks that's how you're supposed to hunt. And his guides are like, no, that's no. – the terrain's too bad. It won't help us stalk appropriately. The horse will give us away. And he just insists, right? Uh, this is a guy who has all of the appropriate gear – for hunting, uh, but of course, in his own effete way, right? He's got silver inlays on all of his rifles. He's got ivory carved handles on his pistols. He's got a hunting knife that was made for him, especially by Tiffany's. And he wants a horse to go along with all of this accoutrement. And so he pays these guys to buy the horse outright, since they weren't going to lend it to him because they weren't sure he could ride it. Footnote for For a fantastic look at Roosevelt's equipment from his time in Dakota, see R.L. Wilson's 2009 Boone and Crockett Club publication, Theodore Roosevelt, Hunter, Conservationist. Incidentally, Roosevelt was a co-founder of the Boone and Crockett Club with George Grinnell in 1887. And sure enough, he's not great at riding. You know, no. like he'll fall off the horse or he'll take the horse down a gully and his companions will just wonder if he's okay. Um, and, I mean, the guy is just inherently reckless while he's hunting uh, because I, I guess that's how he thinks he's going to become better, right? That he's improved by by being beaten to hell by the terrain. He doesn't believe that anything can really happen to him. He has this sort of young man's version of the world that he's going to live forever. And he also has, through his life, realized that pain and the strenuous life is what living is all about for him. And so it's no big deal for him to fall off a horse and get up, breaking an arm or a leg or whatever it is, and, and, and get back into it. He thinks that's the normal part of his life. And and in a lot of ways, I mean, he, he must have had a giant tolerance for pain, apparently. Right. And how else can he prove to these people um, that he is, in fact, uh, a man, right, than to essentially overexert himself? Well, and he was quite the curiosity uh, in the area of Little Missouri for his spectacles alone. And uh, one of the stories he was very fond of telling is in his first trip there, he was uh, sitting at a bar in one of the towns, and a man began to make fun of him for his glasses, and he just cocked him cold, put him down on the ground. And so Roosevelt, in, in telling his stories from this area, was constantly building this, this repetitive version of himself that he told himself that he was. Over and over again throughout his life, he begins to tell you that, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm a politician. I do these things. But who I am is I'm from the West. I'm a hunter. I'm a ranchman. I'm a cowboy. I'm a, a salt of the earth. I'm part of this movement West, this this uh, this thing that he begins to write about nonstop in, in articles throughout, throughout his life in the Dakotas. Footnote 5. Large portions of our discussion rely on Edmund Morris's seminal work on the young Theodore Roosevelt, the rise of Theodore Roosevelt, and on Roger D. Silvestro's focused look at Roosevelt's time in the Dakotas, Theodore Roosevelt in the Badlands, a young politician's quest for recovery in the American West, printed in 2011. We've also turned to Roosevelt's own work, including Hunting Trips of a Ranchman from 1885, Ranch Life and the Hunting Trail from 1888, 
and The Wilderness Hunter from 1893. Yeah, he's constantly pushing his hunting trips to um, to new places or beyond what his guides, um, he wouldn't call them guides. He thought hunting guides were useless uh, and boastful men. Um, but whoever he was taking along with him, uh, beyond the realm, there's a story that he goes out hunting because they hear a rumor that there's a buffalo somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and that became rarer and rarer in his time out there. So if you heard that someone had seen a buffalo, you got on your horse and you tried to kill it as soon as you could before somebody else got it. As you do. Um, and it turns out buffalo hunting, right, was uh, like horribly wasteful because you uh, – the, the creature was so large you couldn't bring all of it back. And so you'd take – the best parts of the meat, maybe the head, and for sure the coat, and that was it. You'd mm-hmm. leave the left, the rest there. Um, and the, you know, so he's going out, and he's got a, a, a whole wagon equipped to help him, uh, but the wagon's moving too slow. So he just tells the wagon that they'll meet him later, uh, but he's going on ahead because he's, he's too impatient. Yeah. And so he rides and rides and rides and rides until his horse is beat to hell, and it can't go any further. Um, and only when it's impossible to go further will he stop and then right up again at the morning to go back at it. And people were the, – his companions were always sort of astounded at both the brazen way he went forward and the, the endurance he had to just keep going. Um, and I don't know if some of that was because they thought the bar was a little bit lower for an Easterner, <laughs> uh, but even they seemed pretty shocked, you know, like I wouldn't want to do – this strenuous doing. work, and he's doing it and smiling, right? I mean, the guy was always pretty jovial about being out there in ways that didn't make sense to his companions. He'd shoot something, he'd he'd whoop and holler uh, after shooting them, and then he'd he'd offer to give the rifle or a gun or something to his companion for for being there at the time. You know, he killed a uh, he killed big game. Yeah, and it's I mean, I it it's. In reading some of the accounts of the people who were there with him, it's kind of impossible to know, were, was their opinion of him influenced by the fact of how he looked? That he was, no matter what he did, a dandy. I mean, even in the way he dressed, he felt that there was a uniform to wear out there. And if he was going to have a uniform, it was going to be the finest cowboy western hunter uniform there was. Yeah, he had uh, he had silver spurs made uh, that he wore with alligator boots. He insists on wearing fringe uh, buckskins when when no one really did that. Yeah, um, you know, and he uh, he 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 just insisted upon having not just the kinds of things people wore out there, but the kinds of things people wore that also indicated uh, that they were uh, more special. Than the than the run of the mill hat or the run of the mill coat, um, and so, you know what the the cowboys out there would call uh, uh, those folks who got off the train because there were a lot of eastern uh, uh, tourists essentially out to hunt. They'd call them dudes or or tenderfeet. There was something about uh, Roosevelt that was significantly different about how he wore it and. And it wasn't that he was trying to fit in because clearly he wasn't. No. Right? You don't you don't wear alligator boots when regular leather boots would do. You don't uh, have uh, every item on your body engraved and <laughs> and gilded. Um, he was really uh, sort of he was dressing the part, but the part wasn't a rancher in North Dakota. The part was Teddy Roosevelt, yeah, the the cowboy. And I think what's interesting about about him as as we look at the the, the two spots here he is in the world at this time, because he's back and forth, back and forth from New York and the East Coast to the Dakotas constantly. I mean, I think the longest period of time he spends in the Dakotas is, is one full year. It's not even a full year. Yeah. Uh, he's there from uh, he's there from roughly February of '86. Uh, through September, and that's the longest part. When he first gets there after the death of his wife and mother, he's back and forth every month um, in the fall of 1884. So it's just sort of a constant. He's 
you know, he's in New York doing his New York stuff, and then he's back setting up the ranch, and then by setting up the ranch, we should be clear, he's having his partners, uh, Sewell and Dow, set up the ranch, and then he takes Merrifield and Ferris out. And goes hunting. And goes hunting. Yeah. Um, on pretty far excursions, right? I mean, he'll plan on being away from the ranch for a month at a time, come back and just sort of bookend these month-long hunting excursions with two or three days at the ranch to do business. And he would write in, you know, in the letters back to his sister who was taking care of his young daughter at the time, like, don't, don't freak out if you don't hear from me for about three months. I'm going to... Uh, Colorado and the Rockies to get myself a mountain goat, and I may be out of touch for a long, long time. Yeah, and it's—I mean—and he—he's going there on horse. Yes, right. Like he's leaving from Medora on horse to track whatever game he can track. Uh, and you know, folks are just sort of constantly. Uh, I mean, why wouldn't you hang around with that guy? Yeah, yeah. Well, not, not only that, but I mean, he is a, an exceptionally uh, good-natured person. And he's somebody who is attractive to others because of how centered he is in his own skin. Whether he's out at the ranch or whether he's riding horses on a cattle roundup or taking his friends uh, to go hunt grizzlies and, and, or sitting at a fire with mountain men coaxing stories out of them, he's always Teddy Roosevelt. It's just that his costume is changing yeah. depending on where he is. Yeah. And, he, you know, the – these excursions get longer and longer because the game gets further and further away from Medora. I mean, the the buffalo are already gone, and and there are various reasons for that: over hunting, but also uh, it was a a way to make the the natives more dependent on the government for food by essentially wiping out that herd. Footnote six. David D. Smits details the U.S. military's role in exterminating the buffalo as part of a broader strategy of rendering Native American communities dependent on the U.S. government in The Frontier Army and the Destruction of the Buffalo, 1865 to 1883, in Western Historical Quarterly, 1994. But even elk and uh, the, the black-tailed deer... Uh, we're going further and further away, and so his excursions got further and further. Uh, and it seems over the two years he's in, in the Dakotas, uh, every hunting trip he recognizes how much rarer the experience of hunting is getting for him. He's got to work harder, go further, stay away longer to catch the game he wants to catch. But it's a weird sort of paradox for him because, you know, He's, he'll, he'll go back to the ranch and lament the fact that you don't see any bison or buffalo anymore. Then someone will come in and say, we saw one down by the river. And he'll go as fast as he can to kill the last buffalo in the area. Well, it's a fix for him, right? Hunting was his drug throughout his life. And this continues beyond the Badlands and, and his time in the Dakotas. But um, it's worth noting that once he kills that first grizzly, he's got to kill three more. And when you read his, I mean, he's got a whole book called Hunting the Grizzly that just talks about how many bears he's killed. This guy never met a big a big game animal or any animal that he didn't kill. He probably killed 10,000 rabbits, I mean, just, yeah. just for fun. I mean, he uh, he details very clearly in, uh, in Hunting Tales of the Ranchman um, uh, his, his gear, right? And he's like... And I've got this shotgun for big game, and I've got this shotgun for foul, and I've got this rifle for when I'm on the horse, and I carry this knife for doing this particular kind of work. I mean, he's uh, – it's not just that he's hunting. He's anticipating killing anything. Everything, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's only towards uh, the the end of 1886 and a little bit afterwards that he shifts those lamentations about – the dwindling wildlife population into something like the conservation legacy he becomes known for by setting aside um, the Wilderness Protection Acts and stuff like that that he does uh, when he's president. Um, and that's because he's got a son on the way by 1887, I think. Uh, and so he sort of recognizes, well, if I want my son to become a man, he's going to have to have things to kill. Uh, but it's again, an indication of his compartmentalizing nature, 
that he will at one moment be lamenting the loss of wildlife. He'll shut that down and then shoot whatever walks in front of him, uh, or or he'll plan another one-month excursion to go get the last of whatever's out there um, because that's what he does. And it, I mean, it all seems to feed into also his idea of, of of what it means to be a man, right? The hunting, the ranching, these are like outfits that he wears, you know, that reinforce to him over and over again that that I'm okay. <laughs> you know, I am the quintessential 19th century man, which which he may well have been by the time he was all done. <laughs> My only adventure with Indians was of a very mild kind. It was in the course of a solitary trip to the north and east of our range, to what was then practically unknown country, although now containing many herds of cattle. One morning, I had been traveling along the edge of a prairie, and about noon I rode Manitou up a slight rise and came out on a plateau that was perhaps half a mile broad. When near the middle, four or five Indians suddenly came up over the edge, directly in front of me. The second they saw me, they whipped their guns out of their slings, started their horses into a run, and came on at full tilt, whooping and brandishing their weapons. I instantly reined up and dismounted. The level plain where we were was, of all places, the one on which such an onslaught could best be met. In any broken country, or where there is much cover, a white man is at great disadvantage if pitted against such adepts in the art of hiding as Indians. While, on the other hand, the latter will rarely rush in on a foe who, even if overpowered in the end, will probably inflict severe loss on his assailants. The fury of an Indian charge and the whoops by which it is accompanied often scare horses so as to stampede them. But in Manitou I had perfect trust, and the old fellow stood as steady as a rock, merely cocking his ears and looking round at the noise. I waited until the Indians were a hundred yards off, and then threw up my rifle and drew a bead on the foremost. The effect was like magic. The whole party scattered out as wild pigeons or teal ducks sometimes do when shot at and doubled back on their tracks, the men bending over alongside their horses. When some distance off, they halted and gathered together to consult, and after a minute one came forward alone, ostentatiously dropping his rifle and waving a blanket over his head. When he came to within 50 yards, I stopped him, and he pulled out a piece of paper. All Indians, when absent from their reservations, are supposed to carry passes, and called out, How? Me good Indian. I answered, How? And assured him most sincerely I was very glad he was a good Indian. But I would not let him come closer, and when his companions began to draw near, I covered him with the rifle and made him move off, which he did with a sudden lapse into the most canonical Anglo-Saxon profanity. I then started to lead my horse out to the prairie, and after hovering around a short time, they rode off, while I followed suit, but in the opposite direction. It had all passed too quickly for me to have time to get frightened, but during the rest of my ride, I was exceedingly uneasy and pushed tough, speedy old Manitou along at rapid rate, keeping well out on the level. However, I never saw the Indians again. They may not have intended any mischief beyond giving me a fright, but I did not dare to let them come to close quarters, for they would have probably taken my horse and rifle, and not impossibly my scalp as well. Towards nightfall, I fell in with two old trappers who lived near Kildare Mountains, and they informed me that my assailants were some young Sioux bucks, at whose hands they themselves had just suffered the loss of two horses. Theodore Roosevelt, Ranch Life in the Hunting Trail, 1888. So in that last segment, um, we got to hear me say, famously, I believe someday, how me a good Indian for probably the first time since I was 10 years old and that sort of thing was actually something you might hear me say when I was playing Cowboys and Indians. Um, and it brings us to uh, an aspect of Teddy Roosevelt that we haven't spoken about, and that is the problems of looking at him historically as a person, because he was somebody who, um, while being held up and put on Mount Rushmore and everything else, as we said at the very end, he was a quintessential 19th century man. And that involved some views of the world that historically don't hold up to scrutiny. Yeah, I mean, the West plays a really important role in the 
the sort of ethos of America in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. It's a romantic place. And some of that is for sure forged by Roosevelt's experience in Dakota Territory. Um, Philip Deloria uh, prominently wrote about it in Playing Indian, right, that we play with that kind of frontier past to, uh, to bolster our sense of history. And Roosevelt's really the sort of pivotal American figure that pumps up this notion of myth. But he's a troubling category for that myth for a variety of reasons, right? I mean, he's not... Um, he's not like Andrew Jackson who grew up in rural areas. He is an aristocratic New York Knickerbocker who spent three years in North Dakota uh, sort of donning the trappings of the West the same way he donned alligator boots. Um, and so he, he plays this sort of pivotal role in shaping America's sense of its frontier and rugged character. Uh, but there are a lot of contradictions in there, um, you know, about his uh, – the, about his wealth and also about his sensibilities towards the West that produce some kind of contradictions when you think about him. Footnote 7. For an account of the role of the frontier and natives play in American identity, see Deloria's Playing Indian from 1999 and Frederick Jackson Turner's 1893 essay, the significance of the frontier in American history. Roosevelt articulates a history of the native peoples and American policies in many of his Dakota books, but most significantly in the 1894 series, The Winning of the West. I mean, we see this in politicians today where they inevitably play up something that was um, really important to them, but perhaps a little disingenuous when you look at it in the long run, whether it's, uh, you know, Carrie talking about windsurfing or whatever else. You could pick a thousand different things. But uh, in Roosevelt, he really believes himself to be the quintessential American, to be the quintessential Westerner, even though we're talking about a period of months in a 60-year life that, that he was there. And during that period of months, he carried a lot of the opinions of a man who was raised in the 19th century um, by, in, in a wealthy class, um, out there with him, and he never really let them go. Um, he famously talked about, uh, in the period after this, he wrote a, a, a number of books called Winning the West. It's like a four-volume set, in which he talked about all the problems with how America chose to look at and deal with the Indians. Um, and he referred to people who disagreed with him as foolish sentimentalists. And he had, in some ways, a little bit of a, a veto power because he'd been out there and he could hold that ab above them. He's like, well, I, you've never been out there. You've never, you're just writing about this theoretically. Um, and so he had, he had opinions that, that just don't really set up. In fact, he when, when you look at them, they're very of the time and you can see how rational they are to him, but they just, they just don't, they just don't work. One of the things he thought is that, uh, what the American government should do right away was break up the reservations, that they should disregard tribal pro politics and, and make the conquered peoples of the Indians, all the tribes, into citizens like every other person. Um, and he, you know, he felt that if they hadn't gone about it the way they did, although he did admit there were some um, problems and some of the promises they made that they were never going to uh, follow through with as a government. But... He felt that uh, if they hadn't gone ahead and, and, as he put it, got into conflicts with the weaker race, that some other stronger power would have taken the continent, and they would now be in, in hold of a minority of, of that continent, their own continent, the continent that he felt they, the Americas were owned by Americans. Yeah, <clears throat> and it's, it's at this stage that you start to see the compartmentalization of Roosevelt's character become unsustainable, at least in retrospect. I think in the times, no one had a problem with it. But as we look back, you know, it's harder for him to maintain this idea that uh, the, the natives needed to be conquered for the sake of America's dominance on the continent and the idea that they can just somehow become American citizens the way he thinks American citizens are. Uh, and so that, that tension produces... Um, you know, what some scholars have called a, a, 
a divided or a schizophrenic sense of American nationalism, which is that we want everyone to be American, but not everyone. And it, it, and, and it also sort of demonstrates the lie Roosevelt was telling himself about his time in the West, right? That it's the greatest romance of his life or that he recreated himself at the de- after the death of his first wife. There's some stuff he brought with him from the East Coast. And one of those things was uh, a mentality about indigenous peoples in the West. And the story he would have heard uh, as a young New Yorker uh, or as an educated New Yorker were only the stories that made the East Coast papers. And not surprisingly, uh, that applies to the it, – it, it performs according to the same rules of news reporting we know now. What's sensational? What appeals to the mass audience, in this case white people? Um, and so the stories he learned uh, uh, or read about the West and the natives uh, in his youth, he took out there with him, um, as, as most settlers did. And this creates a sort of narrative about Native Americans in the West uh, that, is, that is simultaneously troubling, uh, but also wrapped up in this sort of mysticism that makes the West an exciting sandbox to play in if you're a wealthy East Coast kid. Footnote 8. For an account of how natives were portrayed in American mass media in the 19th century, see Juan Gonzalez and Joseph Torres' 2012 book, News for All the People. Even, even the way he talks about um, his interaction with, with the one Indian, you know, the how, me good Indian, like this, there's no way this is the sentence. There's, you know, it, it is playing into the stereotypes that he's read about. It's playing into the way that people want to believe Indians are. Um, you know, there's no doubt they probably had a five or ten minute conversation standing out there yelling at one another. Um, but he's decided to encapsulate that into one small, very uh, compact sentence that fits what he thinks the readers want to hear. Yeah, and it's not, it's not beyond the realm of reason uh, to just assume that that's a, a straight-up fabrication. Um, the, the book that comes out of Roosevelt hastily wrote, he hastily wrote all these stories of his time in Dakotas. I mean, they're being published um, roughly quickly, and uh, um, uh, George Grinnell, the guy he creates the Boone and Crockett Club with, really took him to task for the 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 lazy generalizations he makes in those books about life on the West. Now, Grinnell's concern was mostly about the ways bears behave and that that wasn't um, naturalistically accurate. But there's no reason to suspect that if he was making up stories about bears, that he wouldn't also be making up stories about a group of people he thought were only slightly smarter than the average bear. Yeah. And a lot of the reason for the for the writing that he's doing is that he needs to justify his time. I think it, at some point as he's out west, he's always got his eye on a on a grand comeback in his life. I don't think the idea of being out of politics ever really left him. And in fact, he's making plans, um, in his head at least, <laughs> to go back and 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 get another job. And and he had made a decision early in his life that he wanted to be part of the ruling class. He famously said that, and. He never stopped being part of a ruling class, no matter where he was. And here he was in the West, which is, you know, relatively lawless, uh, relatively uh, without structure. Yet he adjusts himself to speak to the people in a very patriarchal way. To, I think one of the reasons that he's so at ease with with all the folks out there is that he feels that he's he's better than them. So he has not. There's no no. You never worry about that. It's like, it's like talking to a group of kindergartners. If you're nervous to talk to a group of kindergartners, then you're there's really something terribly wrong with you because there's there's no threat that they will ever be um, contradictory towards you or happy not to talk to you. And I think that's the way he looked at the people he met out west and and, and you know most of the people throughout his life. Yeah, retrospectively, folks like to look at at Theodore Roosevelt and wonder if he was really a conservative, given that he was a, a Republican, um, because he's into conservation. Uh, which at times is conservative, but at times is is not, at least contemporarily. Uh, he he broke trusts. He was always out after corruption. And at least in, in the 21st century, these aren't always things we inscribe to the Republican Party. But the one thing Roosevelt does share 
with the the contemporary conservative movement is this sort of uh, patronizing and paternal approach to others um, that you know he he's Western right these are his people but they're not his people like he's of them right they're his people like he's uh, he's supposed to be shepherding them um, and that's a it's an idea that can only work if we are taken in by the myth of Roosevelt um, and also if we understand Roosevelt as compartmentalizing exactly how offensive that sounds when you say it out loud. Footnote 9. For various accounts of the way Roosevelt's complex relationship to the frontier and to East Coast elites shaped American identity, see John Barsness's 1969 article in American Quarterly, Gary Gerstle's 1999 entry in the Journal of American History, and Leroy Dorsey and Rachel Harlow's 2003 essay in Rhetoric and Public Affairs. In 1884, when Roosevelt left for the Dakotas, he professed that the light of his life had gone out with the death of Alice. But time in the wilderness and on the ranch, punctuated by trips back to New York, softened his Victorian sensibilities about fidelity after death, and he began, though very reluctantly, flirtations with an old flame and family friend, Edith Corot. Edith Corot's family had fallen on hard times since her youth playing with the Roosevelt sisters. She was living with friends, keeping up appearances, and, depending on who you read, keeping an eye out for the widower, Roosevelt. In November 1885, Roosevelt proposed to Corot, but the two kept it secret for the sake of Victorian propriety. Corot would travel back to England in 1886, allowing Roosevelt one last prolonged excursion to his Elkhorn Ranch. As fall of 1886 set in, Bill Sewell's 1884 prediction that cattle could not sustain the climate of the Dakotas for more than a few years seemed right on schedule. The cows were tired, the calves were weak, and to make matters worse, the wildlife in Medora seemed to be preparing for an especially harsh winter. Roosevelt urged Sewell and Dow to divest his and their interests in cattle, and he set off to marry Edith Carreau in London on December 2, 1886. The winter of 1886 and 87 was especially harsh. The now Edith Roosevelt was astonished at the losses in Theodore's ranching experiment. The Roosevelts needed money, and it wasn't going to be found on the ranch or in the wilderness. While Roosevelt would visit the West several times to hunt, his excursions to Elkhorn were much less frequent. He took the whole family out in 1890. In 1898, he sold all remaining cattle investments and would only return to the area on whistle-stop tours, never getting off the train to set foot in the land where the romance of his life began. Professor Footnote is produced by Joel Johnians, Associate Professor of Art and Design. And Brett Oman, Assistant Professor... Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Brett, Brett, hey, wait. There's there's one more thing I think we should talk about when we talk about Roosevelt. Yeah, what's that, Joel? Well, he was the first person who, in print, described an active uh, event with Bigfoot. Bigfoot, you say? Yes, Bigfoot. And where did he do that? From In Cowboy Land and Hunting the Grizzly. I once listened to a goblin story, which rather impressed me. It was told by a grizzled, weather-beaten old mountain hunter named Bauman, who was born and passed all his life on the frontier. Bauman and his companion returned to their camp to find footprints. While Bauman was making ready supper, his companions began examining the track more closely. He remarked, Bauman, that bear has been walking on two legs. At midnight, Bauman was awakened by some noise and sat up in his blankets. As he did so, his nostrils were struck by a strong, wild beast odor, and he caught the loom of a great body in the darkness. In the morning, they started out to look at the few traps they had set the previous evening. By unspoken agreement, they kept together all day and returned to camp toward evening. The visitor of the preceding day had returned, and in wanton malice had tossed about their camp kit and bedding and destroyed the shanty. The ground was marked up by its tracks, 
Whatever the thing was, it had walked off, but on two legs. Bauman went out to gather the traps so they could leave. As he came to the campsite, he shouted his approach, but got no answer. At first, Bauman could see nobody, nor did he receive an answer to his call. Stepping forward, he shouted again, and as he did so, his eye fell on the body of his friend, stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. The body was still warm, but the neck was broken, while there were four great fang marks in the throat. The monstrous assailant must have been lurking in the nearby woods, from where it came silently up from behind, walking with long, noiseless steps, and seemingly still on two legs. Professor Footnote is produced by Joel Giants, Associate Professor of Art and Design. And Brett Oman, Assistant Professor of Communication and English at the University of North Dakota. In conjunction with the Digital Press at the University of North Dakota. To learn more about today's topic and our work cited, you can visit our website, ProfessorFootnote.com. You can provide feedback to the Professor Footnote podcast at our website or via Twitter at ProfFootnote. Professor Footnote is recorded in the lab of the Working Group in Digital and New Media at the University of North Dakota.